0: Well, greetings uh, from Hope Church, Toronto West. Today, it's East meets West a little bit. Uh, We are so glad to see that um, this beloved church became, in uh, some senses, a sister church, part of the Great Commission Collective. And so it was such a joy uh, to come and visit you. Julian's visited our church and and spoken, and this is my first time here. So it's such, such, such a joy. It's a privilege, um, particularly as things are opening up a little bit more. Today, I want to talk a little bit about hope. Hope. Um, it's an easy thing to talk about in some, in some senses this morning. The sun is shining. The weather is nice. And so you look to better and sun your days. This week, I was uh, meditating on Romans 15, 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Isn't that, isn't that a yearning of all of our hearts? I, who doesn't want that? That the God of hope would fill us with all joy and peace, that we would abound in hope. I, if there is anything in my life that I could use more of, I think it would be hope. I don't think I've ever met someone and said, you know what I have too much of in my life? Hope. I just, it's just I have a hope surplus. I'm, so, I'm abounding it so much that I need to give some of it away. It's too much. I need less hope in my life. No one says that. But it begs the question, the biblical question, of where do we get hope? Specifically, where does this type of hope come from? I think in our day, there's two common answers to that question. The first answer we can give is that hope is out there. Out there in some political party, the right governmental regulations, the right policies, a new technology, a new program, a new diet, hope is out there somewhere. Another answer that we can give is that hope is over there, over there on the other side of some situation, on the other side of grief, on the other side of this job difficulty, on the other side of affliction, on the other side of this difficult circumstance. But in both cases, we can tend to succumb to this grim conclusion, and that conclusion is this, that hope isn't here. That hope isn't here. It's out there. It's over there. It's somewhere else. But here we sit. But hope isn't in this postal code. But what if we're overlooking a hope from God? A hope that isn't out there. A hope that isn't over there on the other side of a set of circumstances, but a hope that is in here. And what if it's a hope that is greater than a man-made hope? It's not a distant one, but it's closer than we think. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. It's about the reality of a hope that comes with Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is all about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's the title of our message today. So you already have your Bibles turned to Colossians 1, 27 to 29. But as you're there, I want to give you a bit of context, and we're going to read some of the verses before that. Colossians is a prison epistle. It means that Paul is writing from prison. And being in prison, you might think that he would have this pessimistic, dour tone. But he doesn't have that tone. He speaks as if he's really found something, that he's found the secret to real hope. So take a look at verse 24, and we're going to start reading from verse 24 on to just get some of the context. Verse 24 reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. In these verses, Paul's explaining that he is suffering. I mean, he's in prison, but he's suffering joyfully for the sake of the church, because it's the very church that he was appointed a minister. He was given a stewardship. He was appointed a minister, and he was given a mission. At this point in time, in, uh, and the mission is to make the word of God fully known. You know, you may stop at this te- part of the text, and you think, ah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the secret of hope in the passage. You just have to have a special call and a special mission, right? I mean, Paul's secret to joy is maybe he's one of those like super Christians and super missionaries I read about in in the books. He's like Hudson Taylor or like William Carey. He just has this incredible resolve and this call and this mission. Is that the secret maybe to true meaning, true joy, true hope? Maybe that's how I get out of the funk. I just need a new call, a new mission in my life, a new lease on life somewhere out there. But here's the thing, that's really not what Paul is emphasizing as we start to read the rest of the text. See, Paul doesn't, he doesn't start to say, you know what the real hope is? The real hope is I have this ministry, I have this mission, and if you get a ministry mission too, then you can have all this hope and you can go. He doesn't spend the, the rest of the text talking about his ministry and mission. Do you know what he spends the rest of his text, this text about? He spends the rest of the time talking about how earth-shattering and life-giving the gospel message is. And he is all about the message. Check out how he continues in verse 26. Verse 26 reads, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul's saying, let me tell you a little bit about what I'm talking about. This is the word of God fully known, and it is a mystery. It is a mystery Hidden for ages. You see, Paul shows the secret to rejoicing isn't found in his ministry and his mission. The secret of his rejoicing is the mystery of the gospel message. With dripping wonder, he proceeds to marvel at the treasured gospel message. The the mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's really important to read that slow. It's easy to see this in your reading plan and just gloss over it, but Paul wants you to read it slow. You see, it's a mystery. It means it's curious and unique. It was hidden and concealed, it's been kept under wraps for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed. It's sort of like hidden treasure. Uh, this week i was reading about old news stories of people finding hidden treasure it's they're pretty f- fascinating just people walking taking a hike they stumble on something something they, they think it's a rock they dig it out and it's literally hidden treasure and when they're interviewed about it afterwards they say things like i was freaking out i was shaking and hugging the person beside me i couldn't sleep all night because that's what happens when you stumble on hidden treasure and that's the word Paul uses in the book of Colossians. Just look at chapter 2, verse 3. Look down at this verse. See, God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures. In Christ are hidden all the treasures. That's what happens in here. It's hidden treasure that you stumble upon. Imagine you were walking, and you stumbled upon a hidden buried treasure box. And it has an inscription that says, the contents of this box are a divine gift but now uncovered to be revealed fully to the world. In this box, you will find the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Now it's been disclosed. If you found that box on a hike, what would your reaction be? I think you'd be freaking out. I think like... Like the the people who would find treasure, you'd be shaking. And with a deep sense of wonder and adventure and curiosity, you would want to open the box. And imagine you see a letter in the box. You would open the letter, and it would start to sound a lot like verse 27. Look at verse 27. It says, to them, that's the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Are are you catching Paul's drift a little bit? He's not talking about his mission. He's not talking about his ministry. He is talking about the mystery of the message. And the mystery is so profound, he can't stop talking. Look look at how amazed Paul is. He's peering into the mystery, and he's completely staggered. Look at how effusive and overflowing his his language is. Do you notice? Paul doesn't just say to the saints, God chose to make known this mystery. No, he says the mystery has glory to it. The glory of this mystery, it's that this wonderful mystery partook of the character of God himself. That this mystery was the manifest display of God's very character, his worth, and his beauty. But it doesn't just say to the saints, God chose to make known the glory of this mystery. It says the glory has richness, that God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's not just glorious, it's richly glorious. Well, that's not all. (laughs) the verse says that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glories of this mystery. See, the glories of this mystery, they're not just rich, they're richly rich, they're greatly rich, they're rich rich, they're bridal path rich. How great, how rich, how glorious, how marvelous, how wonderful. Paul's talking about why he can rejoice. It's not some mi- mission out there. He has this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. And it's great and rich and greatly, richly glorious. And he's so, he's so amazed that right here, God isn't just issuing a subtle little memo He is declaring it. It's not a footnote. God is making it known. That's what it says in the text. He makes it known. He declares it. He announces it. You see, this right here is the greatest unveil ever. It is the greatest keynote ever. iPhone announcements have nothing on this announcement. And and you see him building. He knows how great it is. And he's building up how greatly, richly glorious this mystery is about to be unveiled. And as the verse continues, at some point, you're just dying to see. You're saying, what is the mystery already? What's the real secret? Would you show me? Unveil it. Pull the curtain back. You've been building this thing up this whole time. I want to see the thing that is glorious, that is rich, and that is great. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. Don't you want to see it? Look at verse 27. What's the mystery? The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The secret to his hope wasn't his ministry and his mission. It wasn't a grand purpose or calling out there or circumstances over there. It's the glorious mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think we should just stop for a second there. Do you realize that? Did you wake up this morning? I didn't. <laughs> But did you wake up this morning just realize, just thinking, wow, there is this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's made known to me, a Gentile, and is great and rich and glorious, and is Christ in me. Let's break that down. Our first point today is this. Christ is in you. Simple as that. Christ is in you. See, Christ is in you is part of this glorious doctrine of our union with Christ. Unfortunately, it's a doctrine that's often affirmed, but it's not marveled at. We can, if you grow up in the church like, my, like myself, you say, yeah, of course, of course I know that Christ lives in me. But for Paul, it's not just this elementary thing that he, he just knows. He's walking in the reality of it. He's pointing and he's looking and he's inviting you to look at what he's seeing. Because here's what he's doing. He's looking into the generations past and he marvels at this mystery. And it really is a mystery. Because think about it this way. In generations past, Moses asked God, show me your glory, Lord. And God replies, you can't see my face for no one may see me and live. But now that God can live in a person. What a mystery. He looked. See, in generations past, the temple was built, and the, 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 it was the reestablishment of God dwelling among the people. But even then, God's presence was separated by a curtain. But you're saying that that God can dwell in human flesh? What mystery? Tim Keller explains the mystery that Paul is marveling at. It is absolutely stunning. He says in Matthew 27, we are told that the moment Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as if by two mighty hands from above. At his death, Jesus dismantled the temple. And at his resurrection, he established a new one. Now, when we unite with the risen Christ by faith through the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory presence of God that had dwelt behind the veil inaccessibly is now available to us. And what this means for the church is remarkable, he continues. Get this. It means that a Christian is not primarily a nice person who subscribes to certain beliefs and codes. Christianity is instead a radical regeneration of the heart and a reorientation of the life. We are regenerated when we believe. Because now the same divine presence that once shook mountains, terrified people, and killed living things on contact lives in us. That means that we who believe in Jesus are now temples which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. It means that being a Christian gives us access to the presence of God through prayer. Moses' unrealized yearning to see the light of God's glory and face is now our privilege. Take a moment to think about that. That Moses' great wish at the end of his life is your daily reality and privilege. Paul puts it plain one chapter later in Colossians 2. He says, and you can see in verse 9, Colossians 2, 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Just stop and and think about that. Do you know the God who existed before time? That God lives in you, dear Christian. You know, the God who rules every throne, dominion, ruler, and authority, that God lives in you, dear Christian. The God who holds the seas of the world in the little hollow of his hand, that that God lives in you. The God whose very presence strikes sinners down, that God lives in you, and you're a sinner like me. And by faith, we are now temples in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. What, Paul, what Moses wished for generations ago is our daily privilege. And I don't know if you're like me, you rolled out of bed and didn't think about that at all. But Paul did. And let's be honest, we're not struck like Paul is. We don't often catch how earth-shattering this is. Namely this, our faith has so united us with Jesus Christ that divine presence lives in you and that should blow us away. Do you, real, do you realize That you are living Moses' dream. (laughs) That the God he yearned to see dwells in you. Amazing. What overwhelms you more today? Is it your fears of what is out there? What grounds you more? The unchanging glory of Christ in you or the changing circumstances out there? Lord, would you forgive us for constantly yearning for the secrets out there? All the while glossing over the true secret and the mystery of Christ in us in here. And oh, that God would grant us to behold the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in us. And that finding this, we may find ultimate hope. Indeed, Christ in us is the hope of glory. That's our second point. Point number two for today is simply this. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Look at verse 27, it says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You see, it isn't just some sterile doctrine, Christ in you. But Christ in you is the very hope of the Christian. And hope for what? Hope for glory. Glory in this verse, in many places in the New Testament, refers to the future glory of heaven. Later in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, you read this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Do you see how Paul's unfolding the script? He says, if Christ is in you, that means you're in him too. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when that Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And that is your hope, your hope of glory. Earlier, Colossians 1 verse 5 calls us the hope laid up for us in heaven. And because of the reality of this hope, the saints in Colossae can get up in the morning to bear the fruit of faith and love for all the saints. They have hope of future glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Present hope, he lives in us, pointing to the hope that will never fade. Where do you tend to look for for hope? Do you look for hope in your own hands, thinking that if you take control and do all the right things, that a glorious finish awaits? Do you hope in your own knowledge? Maybe you can be informed enough to make all the right choices, and then a glorious finish awaits. Maybe you hope in government competencies, and that if the government executes, that a glorious finish awaits. How about you hope in your Christ who dwells in you, and directs you to a hope that will never fail one day, a glory that will never fail, a hope laid up for us in heaven? Uh, Can I be honest? Um, This is not the easiest thing to do. I've struggled to put my hope in Christ in us, the hope of glory. We live in a time where what's out there looms a lot larger than who dwells in here, right? It's a lot easier to have images on a screen, vivid ones, about what's going on out there. That we forget the reality of Christ who lives in here. If it it can feel like if things don't change, it's hopeless. It can feel like right now there's no hope and we have to get over there. We have to get to a different page on the calendar or a different place on the planet and then we'll find hope. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. She said this, God came down and lived in this same world as a man. He showed us how to live in this world subject to its vicissitudes and necessities that we might be changed. Not into an angel or a storybook princess, not wafted into another world, but changed into saints in the world. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. I love that. Christ's design wasn't to save you and waft you into some different world, but to be a saint in the world. And the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. But if we're honest with ourselves, we want the different circumstances, don't we? It's like, not with me. If you're in a set of circumstances where you're like, yeah, I'll take the different circumstances. That's where my hope will come from. Something out there, something over there. But the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Hey, hear this. You're in the exact right spot where God wants you to be. But the real question is this. Is your hope in the right spot? Is your hope Christ in you? Is your hope found in here and not out and over there? The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Point one, Christ is in you. Point two, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And here's our last point. So toil in proclaiming Christ. Point number three, so toil in proclaiming Christ. Let's take a look at verse 28. Paul continues, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. In these these verses, we see two big implications. Two implications of the glorious mystery of Christ in us. Here's implication number one: uh, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. I look at this verse. He's just done talking about the glories of this mystery that are hidden for ages and generations, which is Christ in you with the hope of glory. And the first thing he says is him. We proclaim that's the one we proclaim. Look how great this mystery is. Look at the great reality of what we live, the Christ, the divine presence lives in us, that divine presence, that God, my King, Jesus, he's the one I proclaim. He says, I can't help but speak of Christ. It's true. I finally found this hidden treasure and the God of the universe. He dwells inside of us. And I, I cannot but speak of Jesus Christ. That's what drives him. Do you you see this? This is the internal engine, by the way, that drives Paul's zeal and his proclamation. It's not some external call. It's not the right external ministry conditions either. What drives Paul is Christ in us, the hope of glory. His external circumstances may look bleak. He's in prison, but his internal engine is not changed at all. I just want to stop here. We're living in a time where it's easy to give up on the church at large. It's easy to give up on the Great Commission. It is easy to give up on proclaiming Jesus Christ. But if you see that there is this great mystery hidden for ages and generations, the same divine presence that once killed living flesh on contact, that he lives in you, a wretched sinner, purely by grace and by faith alone, what you'll say is him we proclaim. Regardless of what is happening out there, he is so valuable to me. He is such a treasure to me that I will proclaim him. No matter what goes on out there, what is in here hasn't changed. Paul talks more about how this is done. He says warning and teaching. See, teaching is instructive, formative speech. Warning is corrective speech. Teaching is the father who, says, who tells his son, you know, before you cross the road, look left, look right, then look left. Warning is the father who calls his son, stop, don't cross the road. Both are crucial. Both are expressions of deep love. Both are exercises in wisdom. Both are needed in the church of God. Note who, he, who is called to the task Every single person, they want to present everyone mature in Jesus Christ. Later, Paul extends the invitation in Colossians 3.16. He says, all of us should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Sounds familiar. And finally, take note of Paul's overall goal. What is the light at the end of the tunnel? He says in verse 28 that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the payoff? What is the purpose? It is the pleasure and privilege of presenting to Christ mature believers, not spiritual babies. It is rejoicing when those around us go from milk to solid food. It's the same joy that comes when a parent sees their toddlers take their first step. But notice it's the same heartache and the same agony that a parent experiences when he gives everything to their teenager. And the teenager looks at them and says, You've never loved me. I hate you. Mature. The end goal, full maturity, a wholehearted, undivided, Devotion to Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong journey until Christ returns or he calls us home. Proclaim Christ by warning and teaching in all wisdom. It's a mandate for everyone that we may present ever mature in Christ all because of this one unchanging reality, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glorious mystery drives the all-glorious mission. I'm going to level with you. This was a sermon that was easier to preach before the pandemic. Uh, These verses, actually, for me, were written on my core purpose statement. Take a look at it every single week because I'm a forgetful guy. Before the pandemic, for me, I would read these words, these words of glorious mission to proclaim Christ for the sake of maturity, and it would be energizing. But today, as our world rages and and we struggle... More often than not, sometimes this can feel listless. But for me, it shows me that I need the the glorious mystery of the gospel even more. That in changing times, particularly now, you need the unchanging truth. That as turmoil out there increases, as circumstances get harder out there, and I'm tempted to yearn for an earthly promised land. I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I look at the calendar and I want to flip the page and circle some point later on on the calendar that I'm going to put my hope in to say I want circumstances to change. In times like that, we need to say to our hearts, soul, the reality of what's in you has not changed at all. Soul, the, the, the storm clouds seem darker than ever, but dear soul, this has not changed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dear soul, has the glorious mystery become faded and dimmer by your circumstances? And I don't know about you, but there's a psalmist who says, You know, Lord, we forget not your benefits. Soul, forget not his benefits. And this is what I'm asking for us to do. Please hear my heart for you. It's not your ministry output that I'm wanting. The application point here isn't. Go and proclaim Christ and sign up for this ministry and sign up for this thing and work and work and work. That's important. But what I truly want is your gospel joy. The unchangeable gospel joy. The joy of tapping into the riches of the glorious of mystery of which is Christ in you. And letting that joy flow out in proclamation. Because that hasn't changed you may be, I pray you're in a a situation where you're saying, God, thank you for the circumstances that I'm in. And if that's you, please thank the Lord for what he's given. But if you are in a set of circumstances where you're saying, Lord, I feel like the hope is growing dimmer. Please hear from your God. And please tell your soul, soul, the glorious mystery has not faded and has not become dimmer by your circumstances. It's still the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. The first implication of Christ in us is proclaim Christ. But thankfully, that's not the final word. Here is the hopeful and beautiful second implication. Implication number two, toil with Christ's power. Toil with Christ's power. Verse 29 reads, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In this verse, Paul acknowledges this idea of proclaiming Christ. That's, it's hard work. Right out of the gate, he says, yep, yeah, it's hard work. It's so hard that it requires toil or, the, or intense effort. More than that, it's a struggle. I love that word. The original Greek word for struggle was typically used to describe agonizing wrestling contests. See, it was a fight. Paul had to wrestle to keep proclaiming Christ. There's no rose-tinted glasses here. The mission of proclaiming Christ while glorious is a toilsome struggle. But this verse gives a stunning counterbalance to the toil of proclaiming Christ. Here's the the biblical balance. We provide the toil, but God provides the power. We provide the toil, but God provides the power. Can Can you see that balance in verse 29? Verse 29 reads, for this I toil. There we see the human effort and exertion. But keep reading. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here we see God's power. Because of Christ in you, you have this immortal engine running inside of you. And while you may provide very meager manpower, Christ provides the God power. It's pretty fascinating. If you look at verse 29, the words energy, power, and works, they all come from the same Greek word that refer to the power of God. And curiously, nowhere in the New Testament are these three words combined like how they're combined right here, featuring three times in one little phrase. Do you know what that means? It means that in the midst of toil and struggle of proclaiming Christ, God gives power upon power upon power. He gives power upon power upon power. If you Do you feel powerless? Do you feel like you've been spending yourself for the proclamation of Jesus Christ? Do you feel spent? Christ in you gives power, but not just a little. He gives power upon power upon power. Perhaps you want to be faithful, salt, and light in this world, but you keep hitting wall after wall after wall. Take heart, brothers and sisters, because Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. Keep toiling. God provides the power. Maybe you're a ministry leader here, and you feel burnt out and spent, but Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. You You may need a time of rest, but in the long run, keep toiling. God provides the power. Maybe you're surrounded by the pain of relational conflict and strife, and you feel too faint-hearted to go on. Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. You may need a time of rest, but in the long run, keep toiling. God provides the power. Um, I've learned in the last two years that God does provide the power, but sometimes it doesn't look exactly like what you would want it to be. That you would read this text and you think, man, God's just going to give this huge boost of energy I'm going to be full of vim and vigor. But the great truth of the gospel is that we get to be just jars of clay. And we have treasure hidden in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power does not belong to us, but it belongs to God through weakness so that his strength is made perfect in weakness. I'd like to end our sermon today with the story of John Payton. In the the mid-1800s, John Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. In his autobiography, he recounts a story where he's getting chased. He's chased by an unreliable chief, and hundreds of angry natives are hunting him for his life. So he scrambles up, and he hides in a tree. And in his autobiography, he writes about his time in the tree. And this is what he writes. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yell of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Then he has a message for us. And he says, if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, All alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself. Have you a friend that will not fail you then? (laughs) Do you have a friend like that? Who will not fail you as you sit in your tree all along, all alone in the presence and the embrace of death? Uh, Dear brother and sister in Christ, you do have a friend like that. He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are living Moses' unrealized dream, and you get more than just some impersonal force. You get Jesus Christ in you. And he is the one who consoles you in the tree and gives you a hope that is incomparable. See, the secret is Christ in us, not us in a different set of circumstances. I don't know about you, but I picture John Payton sitting in this tree in the embrace of death. Before I read this story, I thought... When you're in the worst of circumstances, how can it be that Christ in you is enough, is the hope of glory? And then you picture John Payton sitting in a tree and you think, yeah, he's enough. In the embrace of death, this glory hidden for ages and years, you can hear him. He felt so safe because, as he told his whole heart to Jesus. John is living proof. And may we be, may we be as well. That the secret is Christ in us, not us in a different set of circumstances. Make him your dear friend, our beloved Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray.